Hey everybody, this is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse podcast. You're listening to episode 128. This very special episode is brought to you by our good friends at Veeam Software. For everything for your data protection needs, you want to go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. That lets them know that old Disco Posse sent you over there. Plus, they're also wicked cool. Uh, longtime friends and sponsors, uh, big respect. In fact, I'm doing a review of some really, really neat features, so check out the blog. Uh, go to discoposse.com and you'll see more about what's coming up. Anyways, let's get back to the show. This is a really cool episode because we talk with Ryan Frederick. He literally wrote the book, The Founder's Manual. Ryan's just a spectacular human. He was an absolute pleasure to talk to and just filled with lessons about startups, about funding, about building teams, running teams, just such a, a wealth of really, really great knowledge. Uh, plus the book, pick up the book, go to thefoundersmanual.com. You can check it out. But more than anything, just enjoy the show. Uh, Ryan was really, really fun. Uh, and just like I said, it's like going to school. Enjoy. This is Ryan Frederick, and I'm the author of The Founder's Manual, a book about uh, becoming an entrepreneur, building products, and starting companies. And I'm a principal at AWH, a product consulting and data consulting firm. And you are listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Ryan, I've we talked really briefly at the start, and 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 I, I always love to share these stories with people uh, because I've had my own passions, and truthfully, so selfishly, like this podcast is is just my chance to kind of carry my passion and being able to have great conversations and learn from incredible people who've have got great lived experience as yourself, and when I kind of always thought about building this, you know, this sort of manual of, you know, founder stories. And, and in fact, that's what a lot of the, like kind of the content of the podcast has been about, because I wanted to take from those conversations and potentially extract lessons. And then I found you and I found the founder's manual and uh, you saved me a lot of time. First of all, uh, it's a great, great guide. Uh, very, very well written. Uh, the fact that the way that you've laid it out across the three parts, but let's not talk about me talking about you. Let's let you introduce yourself, Ryan. Let's, uh, where do your, what's your background? Uh, we'll talk about obviously the founder's manual. We'll talk about what you're doing with AWH and the, the power of product building and, and how we can do it well. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And thanks for having me. I, I never intended to write a book. It was one of those things that, uh, I don't think that most people that probably write a book, you know, uh, thought about it. Uh, I think it's one of those things that just becomes a possibility at some point. Um, if you if you're not an author by by craft, and I'm certainly not, so I appreciate you saying that that you know it's it's you thought it was well written because the publisher deserves a lot of credit for that from because I'm actually not a terrific writer. Um, so they did a lot of cleanup, and I'm appreciative of that. Uh, and it, it it is really sort of the the culmination of writing lots of notes over time and thinking about um, being a founder and starting companies and building products and and some principles around you know all of that 
because uh, I think that we often get lost in the fact that you know there are a lot of methodologies and processes and opinions on on what it means to be a founder and and what it means to build a great product and and to build a successful company and i think we often lose sight of of uh the the human aspect of it and um the fact that it's a pretty count all of them are pretty encounter are, are pretty counterintuitive the, the, what you think you know is the right way to go about doing user validation, for instance, is actually probably not the best way to do user validation. Uh, and the fact that you might be an engineer, you know, starting a company and you don't want to have anything to do with sales, is probably not going to go over very well. And you're probably going to have to wear a sales hat, you know, as part of the process. Um, and I think the fact that, you know, we, we've sort of romanticized being an entrepreneur now and, um, you know, I think most people shouldn't be. Um, it, it, it's a it's a mercurial journey that's lonely and challenging. I think it's the most professionally challenging thing anyone can do is to to try to build a product that people will value and then commercialize it through a company. Uh, but I don't think most people should do it uh, because it is um, not the path, certainly of least resistance from any perspective. Yeah, in fact, you're you're betting against consensus for the most part, which is the has the highest potential for high returns and gains. It also has the unmatched high ability to fail. <laughs> like right. the odds are not in your favor at all. <laughs> right. And all of that makes it irrational, right? I mean, wanting to start a company is irrational. Be investing in companies is irrational. Wanting to be on the team of a startup is irrational. And so it's a, all of it is th this huge irrational um, endeavor that doesn't make any sense. And no one really in their right mind would, would do it and want to participate in it. So um, that means that you have to be in your right mind in, in some very sort of obscure ways um, to, to carry it off. And it also means that most people shouldn't do it. Yeah, this is the interesting thing. And, and even so, again, one thing I really appreciate about the way you told the, the flow of the story, and I use flow very importantly because it's part of the whole, the whole manual really, is the idea of the founder's flow. Number one, like, Let's start with you, start with the team, right? Like it's a very different, that's the first focus. And it's, that is one, an area of practice unto itself uh, and, and an incredible challenge. Then there was the startup flow. Okay, now you've got people. Now let's like, what do you do to actually wrap a company and, and uh, build a business around these people. You know, the, the investors often say you invest in a team, not in an idea. And it's as important that that, that now comes into play when we get into the startup. And then the third portion is the product flow. And there's, there's no single human that's going to be great at all of them, which is, I think, like you said, it's, you're really, really betting against all rational behavior and thought to have one person go in. This is why the, a team is most important. Now, this is the trick, right? How, how do we know that we are, you know, going to be able to depend on more than ourselves for the future of our idea? Yeah, I think it becomes 
there's certainly first you have to put your ego in check as a founder or, or a co-founder and know that if you're going to fulfill the potential of the, the product and company, that it is not going to be based upon your efforts. It's going to be based upon the efforts of a team. And I think if, if you start with that mentality, then you're, you're better prepared to um, even begin to take a back seat, <clears throat> excuse me, when you begin to hire people and add people to the team that are more capable than you are in almost every area of the business. And, and that's what should happen uh, because most founders at the beginning, and there's a chapter in the book that talks about being the first best in a company. And it's true at the beginning that the founders have to be the first best salespeople and marketers and engineers and designers. Uh, and then, and then, and to get some traction and to get some product validation and, and some customer product fit, you have to do that. But at the point that you can start adding to the team, then it becomes where's the most valuable areas to add to the team that the founding team is the weakest in. So how do you start propping up the founding team with the, the best craftspeople in certain disciplines and areas of the business so that you get the best return on that and the business gets you know, an influx of, of talent and skill that's needed based upon priority of, of where the business is and what the business needs and what the founders are best at or not. Yeah, and the interesting thing is the, the, the choices of it's a, first of all, it's an incredible faith exercise on both sides of the hiring decision, like someone to join a founding team with effectively no product other than, you know, an idea and a hope and a potential, you know, hopefully some history, you know, to have done something in the past, you can say, all right, they've been able to get there already. Uh, but at some point, everyone's a first time founder. And we all right. have to lay a bet on that one. And then on the founder for trusting and believing in this person they're hiring to carry the vision and be and always sort of work within that that vision. It's a it's a beautiful marriage of things. Uh, but it's an incredibly challenging thing. And Diane Green, uh, who co-founded VMware, she talks about the importance, too, of the first hires because effectively she says the first hundred will hire the next thousand. Mm -hmm. So everybody you hire, you have to believe so strongly that they believe in you that you can trust them when you're not there to carry your, your message, your vision, and, your, you know, and execute on that, that vision as well. Yeah, and the early team members, and it's going to, you know, the number is going to vary, you know, by company and sort of company trajectory, but whether it's, you know, the, the third person in or the, the hundredth person in, um, they, they define the culture too, yeah. because it is, it is those te early team members and how decisions get made and how, and micro actions get taken that defines the culture for the, the, the team members that then join after them. And as much as we want to sort of put, you know, culture responsibility on founders and vision responsibility on founders, as soon as you start adding to the team, the team has as much effect and participation in the culture than, than the founders do, for sure. It's a neat thing that yeah, as you see it come over time, too, because they're quite often the, the product takes on a life of its own, you know, and, and it's as the... You know, I even talk about it with teams that I've done advisory work for and even internally in my own organization. Or say at one point, it's the old classic Apple thing. If, if everybody 
if you think that everybody's holding it wrong, then they're not holding it wrong, right? Like right. I, <laughs> at right. some point, maybe you've designed it in a way that wasn't meant to be used and somebody's found another way to use it. And in fact, also some of the most profound product stories are pivots, not the original intention was not realized and they sort of accidentally discovered this incredible feature or capability or function. I think like Slack is a great example. Slack wasn't designed to be Slack. It was, you know, a thing they used while chatting to build the real product they wanted to build. And then they realized that was the product. You know, there's a, countless stories that are like that. And some are heroic, like the Slack one, but they're really, I think everybody company, every company at some point, what they started off with is like, all right, we got this. You and me, Ryan, we're going to build this thing and this is how we're going to use it. And this is how everybody else is going to use it. And then, you know, uh, uh, four months in, you realize, wow, there's this hidden feature that everybody seems to be really digging. And I think maybe that needs to move to the front. Yeah, I think there there is a um, an evolution that happens there that, it, it, and if the evolution doesn't happen, and if I run into a startup now that's, that, that says, yeah, I mean, this is still the original concept that we had, and, and let's say that they're, you know, a year into it, then I start to question, well, how much have they been really validating and iterating with customers and users, and how much of they have have they been learning, and how much have they, you know, adopted through that that iteration? Because if they're a year into it and they're with the same thing that they started with, that's a little bit of a red flag for me that they're not learning and they're not sort of adapting to what users and customers are saying and that they've they've put a little bit of a defensive barrier around the initial concept because to your point and to my experience it is so unlikely uh, i mean probably less than one percent of products actually achieve customer product fit based upon the original concept and and so when i see that I start to think, you know, that, that the startup maybe got a little insular and, and if they've been doing much customer interaction and, and iteration that they haven't, they haven't leveraged much, much of it. Yeah, this is the, the, the power of the echo chamber. It's an unfortunate thing that's very easy to get sort of religious about how you're doing things. And then you, rather than bring in new parishioners, you just sort of cut down the number of pews <laughs> and and because it's easier to get continuous internal feedback and of course everybody believes in what you're doing but then we yeah, when you go out and test it you know negative feedback or challenging feedback is good feedback because it means that someone's gone so far to find a gap and now you have the opportunity to evaluate that and say okay what do we do with this they think that they're using they're using it for something different. Is that where we go, or do we, you know, shut that portion down? Like, it's th those are if you're not measuring continuously as a feedback loop, and the feedback loop is only between the engineers and the founders. Then, it's like you said, it's harsh realization as they get further and further, and then they try and bring that to the market. Yeah, and and it still happens too often where, even when a when a company is is iterating with customers. That, that they and and they're doing it because they know that they should be and that they, they'll be questioned if, if they if they aren't right by the board by advisors by investors maybe by team members 
and then um, but all they're seeking is positive affirmation and positive feedback. And so they do the validation incorrectly and they sort of get into this, this bad cycle of going to customers and users only in the affirmative saying things like, tell me what, tell me what you like about this. Tell me why you would use it. Tell me how this would add value for you when they should be going to those users and customers with the questions formulated in the negative to give those customers and users the permission to challenge them and, and ask, ask the questions you know, in the format of, tell me what you don't like about this. Tell, tell us what we got wrong. Tell us why you wouldn't use it because customers and users need permission to be able to give us real authentic, transparent feedback. And if we're only asking it for in the affirmative, they'll give us affirmative feedback, which then gives us a lot of false positives. Yeah, this is the interesting thing of the user interview. And I've been lucky to be on the on the customer side of a lot of like early research done with some some big companies. And it was funny because they would I remember doing the very, very early like wireframe type of reviews with stuff. And then they would go through and literally you just you're, you're seeing a thing that said, So what 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 do you see here? And very much like just no guidance. And it's 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 amazing that, you know, obviously that's a tough one. Like that's, that's a big company that's got a lot of money and time that they can afford to kind of go through those really, really deep early, you know, prototyping uh, versus you generally have to be a little further along. My, my belief is, you know, like you, you got to have something that people are really using and then, then test it along the way. But it was neat to say like, so, you know, I know that they, I would describe what I see. And, and so I, I'd like to click here and see what that is. And they go, Oh, okay. Interesting. You know, let's go to slide seven. You know, it's like, okay. So what, what did you expect to see when you, and it was, it was really neat to go through that flow. And then ironically enough, one product I, I did a review on it took like 18 months before it actually came to the market. And again, if you're a multi-billion dollar company, you can afford to do stuff like that. Right. Right. <laughs> but it was wild that they very much, let me guide, you know, it's like, you know, show me on the prototype where the bad software touched you. It was very, very open-ended of like, let's, let's see. And like, I'm like, I wouldn't lay it out this way. Like, it's very confusing. They're like, oh, interesting. Why, you know, why do you say that? And, but they, and I've been on other interviews and it's very much the opposite. And you can tell the difference where it's like, okay, so this is what you're seeing. And this is what you see. If you click here, you're going to get this. And like, I'm like, no, no, stop leading the witness. And it's very tough for us to be passionate about what we want it to do and freeing the user to let us tell us what they want it to do. Yeah, because we have builder bias, right? We have creator bias because it's impossible. You know, the, 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 pr the product is the team. The, 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 the product is, is representative and it's a mirror of the people that have built the product. And so by, by that very fact, we then have creator builder bias built in that we want people to like what we've done. They, they want, we want them to like our perspective on it. We want them to like how, how, what we've, what we've sort of, you know, manifested for them to their, for their benefit. And the challenge around all of that is that we then, you know, tend to, um, we're, we, we're then sort of toxic to the, the iteration validation process with users 
because our bias is just sort of dripped throughout the process and and just sort of oozes you know all over it and the the, the companies that are that are the best at at product um are able to emotionally distance themselves from the product it's not like it's not like they they abdicate ownership of the product but they're able to to emotionally distance themselves to say you know what we 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 think we've nailed it but we're also going to be okay when we take this to users and users say this isn't even close because what they value more is working in the best interest of the users and the product than working in their own best interest. Well, that, and this is the neat thing. Let's talk about your, your thoughts and maybe definitions on there's product-led development and user-led development versus, you know, sort of the, the traditional, like, let's just build this giant thing and then, and then force people into that into that square, you know, peg hole, you know, whatever it's going to be, how, what would you describe as a very good user and product led development process? Yeah, I think that, that um, customers and users should be at the center of that. And, and the reason I think they should be at the center of it is because I think it's a fallacy if we think that we can build a product that, that customers will use value and pay for at the necessary level, if we don't understand the problem at an expert level. And ultimately, the only way to understand the problem at an expert level is to spend enough time with customers and users to be able to elicit that problem understanding. So for me, it's as much about getting that expert level problem understanding as it is the feature functionality and usability of the product. Because if you understand the problem at expert level, you're way more likely to then be able to translate that into a user experience and, and feature functionality in a product than if you're problem understanding is is superficial and now you're 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 sort of grasping at straws on the 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 functional footprint and user experience side of it so problem understanding with customers and users to me is is part and parcel of the validation iteration process and and that's one of the reasons that enterprises and big companies are traditionally not as good at building innovative new products as startups are because startups really don't have a choice early on to to work closely with customers and users because they don't have any right, right exactly. and so there's sort of there's sort of a, a necessity built in that that uh, but startups also migrate quickly away from uh, working intimately with customers and users and 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 so that's a no-no but you know big companies um, you know, they have voice of customer initiatives to represent the, their customers. Well, that's not good enough because if, if you have to have a, an initiative to represent the voice of your customer, you're, you, by very definition of that, you're not close enough to your customers. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing of like, I need to find a customer that will say this sentence back to me, <laughs> it, which right. is generally how they go. <laughs> exactly. Our voice of customer initiative means that we're going to look for happy customers that will say good things about us and about what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the, the challenge. And like you said, the, 
So this is a neat thing. So startups have an unfortunate tendency to, to move towards that way too quickly. And so maybe who, who is successful in your, your views, Ryan, on, on staying profoundly close to their customer through the continuous development of, of a platform? Yeah, I would say the, my go-to example of starting out really close to customers and then, and then doing that throughout their growth is Airbnb. Um, you know, uh, Brian Chesky, you know, has said publicly on multiple occasions that, that they, they went to um, homes and apartments and dorm rooms early on and, you know, slept on air mattresses, just like, you know, customers and users were so that they could understand the host experience. And so they could understand the, the, the stayer experience. That's probably not the right term and not the right language that they would, uh, they would use. Um, uh, and then they've, and they've, they've, and they've stayed that course throughout the process. They do tremendous amounts of, of testing and validation and looking and also looking at data of okay we 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 rolled this out who's using it when are they using it how are they using it and so airbnb for me is is a, a terrific example of they've not drifted away from the fundamental premise that if we don't understand the problem and we don't understand how our users interact with our product to, to get value then then we don't really have anything and and they've been um, just exceptional at doing that. Well, the interesting thing is it, it kind of, it pairs up with empathy in the understanding of what, what the, the person who's using your system or platform or whatever the, the experience is will go through in being empathetic to that experience. And I often tell people that user centricity and empathy are not fonts. You can't write like an empathetic person. You are you have empathy, and through that empathy, you understand the experience, and then you write and communicate like somebody who has that. It's you can't just go and like I'm gonna you know write a very empathetic article. No, no. <laughs> well, maybe some people can pull it off, but a true company lean into that as making it core to their the way they do business and the way they interact. It has to be has to be built in. And so how do we how do we maintain that as we scale the organization as well? Which I think is probably one of the biggest challenges. It's very easy to see that uh, that kind of where things start to go away from the, the core vision. Yeah, I think that there are some um, very sort of strategic things that you can do and, and some, you know, also very tactical things. Um, I think Google is, is a good example. It, it, when Google releases a new product, um, it says beta on it sometimes for years, clearly after the point that it was not a beta product anymore. I think that Gmail had beta on it for seven years. Yeah, it was it, the longest running beta and most widely adopted beta platform I've ever seen. <laughs> right, exactly. Hundreds of millions of users and it's still in beta. Um, I don't know why I'm doing air quotes because, you know, this is a podcast, but anyway, I just did air quotes. Um, 
And, and so I think, but I think the reason that the, the Google does that is because they're trying to reinforce to themselves and the team, as well as to users, that this is a work in progress. And, and we're going to keep iterating on this product for an extended period of time uh, and, and having beta on the product, you know, visible reinforces the fundamental principle that we don't expect this product to be done to any great extent, right, and, and, and mindset for a while. And, and I think that is... Um, Something that that and, and all software products don't have a finish line. They just have a they just have a next point, right? Yeah. Um, but we often also lose sight of that, where it's like, okay, well, you know, the new release is out. All right, cool. We cross that. We cross that finish line, right? And it's now time to start talking about the next, you know, the next release. And I think that when you get into that sort of mindset, that can that can be a sign that you're starting to drift away from customers and the problem and looking at the product not as you know this thing that has these very definitive um sort of you know stage gates uh but in in google's case around putting beta on the products it just drives home the ultimate vision and perspective th that we, we we're not sure we've gotten it right yet and we're going to keep we're going to keep iterating until we're closer well and here's the interesting thing and, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll put my opinion on here i won't pull you into my my personal hell here ryan google graveyard is a famous landing spot for many highly adopted products so they've while they've been profoundly good at really stretching out that that thing They've also, unfortunately, been so beautifully data-driven that they've said, hey, look, we have you know, 322 million users and only 14 million of them are using this product. And they come along with a scythe and just like <laughs> just cut the feet off of the thing. And, and it's a bit painful because at their scale, it doesn't make sense to keep going. And I've, I'm, I fully understand that. But boy, oh boy, it's harsh when you're a really, when you love that product and, and it goes away, uh, you know. Well, and it also, because most people would say that, you know, Amazon is, is good at product and a successful company uh, and, and they get how to build solid, you know, valuable products. Um, and Alexa came out of the Fire Phone. And so Alexa, most people would point to as a successful product and the Fire Phone, not so much. Yeah. You know, they just missed the mark on the Fire Phone. And so they killed the Fire Phone, but they discovered Alexa through that, pro Alexa through that process. So um, it, it being a, bright, a great product company doesn't mean that you hit a home run every time, right? right. And part of being a great product company is you have a better... Uh, understanding of what it means to have a great product. And then when you don't hit a home run, you're willing to take those products off of the shelf because you know that it's not a great product. Instead of trying to defend the fact that a mediocre product and to, you know, and pretend like it's a great product, you're then much more willing to say, we didn't nail that one and that's okay. And so now we're going to put it on the shelf. Yeah, I guess it, and in that, in that way, Google has an unfortunately, different lens that 
are that the users put on them because they can have literally 5 million people using a product and that's a waste of time for them mm-hmm. because of the scale that they're working at. So I do, I, I'm kind of, I kind of openly give a poke at them. I got a lot of friends that work at Google and they got fantastic people. Uh, and so I, I feel bad that I kind of give them a little, a little rub here and there on, on when they, they kill off product. Every time they have a new product, I'm like, Oh, this is great. I, I can't wait to, uh, to hate when this thing goes away in 18 months. <laughs> uh, and, but, and I understand why they do it. And I've talked to a lot of founders. Uh, so the team at HashiCorp, uh, they're actually in the middle of their digital you know, conference as, as you and I are recording. And they took a, a fairly well-adopted product and just, they deprecated it. And I, I actually talked to Mitchell Hashimoto, who's one of the co-founders, as well as Armand, who's their other founder, about like that process. And he said, it's, yeah, it's, it's not an easy decision but it's way easier than letting it live beyond its expectancy and then having to support it, develop it, explain away why you're not doing certain things with it. You're better off to just say, look, the right thing to do is put this one to bed and move people to either the next thing that, that will fill that gap or fully and openly acknowledge that the gap, you can't fill that gap. And this product was not going to do it. And, and we have to move our attentions elsewhere. Yeah, well, and that means that they're, you know, a fairly smart, sophisticated product organization, right? Because they, they realize when a product has, has outlived its usefulness, th- that it's okay to, to admit that. And where a lot of, of companies, especially big enterprises, um, you know, have a product that's outlived its usefulness, their first instinct is how do we put lipstick on this pig and then take it back out to our users again with a different name, different color scheme, different font scheme, right? But essentially we're taking the same product out and we're just trying to, you know, do a little okie doke on them. And, and it's like, goodness, this is, your users are smarter than this. If it did, if it, if it, if this product was tanking, there's a reason it was tanking and it's not, and it's not because of the color scheme and it's not because of the fonts and it's not because of the name, yeah. but it happens, it happens time and time again. And then those companies continue to wonder why they don't put out products that users value and, and, and want to use. And it, it just becomes, you know, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. One of the things I really liked, and you, you've given this description through portions of, of the guide, uh, of the manual itself, as well as in, in some of your talks that you gave, the def- definition of a product, right? And a successful product, really, in that. I'd love you to walk through how you describe a successful product and, and what makes it, you know, because you've, you've got a, a well-worded sort of set of criteria. And I like how you always sort of quote, like, have at it. Tell me I'm wrong. Like, I'd love to hear criteria, uh, some criticism on, on this one, but this is, I, I, I really do appreciate the way you describe it. It's, it's, it fits quite nicely. Yeah, I think a su- successful product has to, has to accomplish two very fundamental things. It has to, uh, for the, what, what I call the product owner, and, and so in this you know, term, it's the company that is bringing the product to market and owns the product, that they have to get, what they need out of the product from a business outcome perspective. So it, 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 
could be X number of users, it could be revenue, it could be profit, it's probably a mixture of, of all of those things. And then at the same time, it has to bridge the gap and provide enough value that users want to start using the product, continue to use the product and pay for it at a level that serves the needs of the product owner. And so I think a successful product is, is a bridge that bridges those two uh, entities together, the product owner and the product users in a way that each benefits. And, and I thought a lot about this over time because freemium became, you know, a, a, a big thing, you know, probably, I keep saying 10 years ago, it's probably more like 15 years ago now. Yeah, you, you and I suffer from the same problem of like, like uh, I keep getting older yet somehow my terms stay the same. <laughs> exactly. My references have not changed in 20 years, but five years ago, um, and so, you know, I think that freemium never really delivered on the, the, the promise and the potential for a couple of reasons. One, because the, the, um, the, the, it was never supposed to be an, an operating model, right? Freemium was really a customer acquisition strategy around if we price it this way, if, if, we, if we sort of package the product this way, we, we, we might be able to acquire more users. Right. What happened is freemium got bastardized and it became a fundamental business model where companies said, well, we're a freemium company. And it's like, mm, that's stretched it pretty far. And so I'm an Evernote user and I've been a premium Evernote user for a while because I like some of the features that premium gives you. Um, but the challenge is they're not a long-term sustainable company, and I would say not a successful product by the definition of, of this bridge, you know, visualization example between product owner and product user because they don't co convert enough users from their freemium product to their pay product. So the, it's, it's a lopsided product in favor of users not equally balanced with them as a product owner for it to be considered a, a successful product by my definition of what a successful product is. And uh, virtual fist bump to a fellow uh, premium Evernote user. Uh, I, why am I still using it? Because I've got a lot of content in there and I share it with people who, you know, one, I, I, my wife and I share it and we, I pay for her subscription and another you know, friend of mine and we, we use it to collaborate on a lot of stuff. Uh, so I've, I'm kind of locked in to it for that reason. And I've learned to love the fact that I will pay for it. You know, I love it enough that I'll, I'll pay for it. And I kind of justify it every September when my renewal comes up. <laughs> right. But the, the interesting thing is, they actually have been, is, when you hear the sort of founder story of, of Evernote, they, they really went through a rough go early and that rough go carried on and, and still sort of carries on to this day where, you know, they're not really the big up and to the right company, but that's the high growth, you know, market. And they seem to actually be pretty good with it, which is also an interesting acceptance of, you know, I look at folks like a company called Basecamp. Uh, used to be 37 Signals, and they had a few different products. And Jason Fried, who's got a great sort of story of like how they founded the company, and they very much are in the like, hey, look, we're gently rising in customer usage. We have a lot of people paying for our premium product, and we're good. You know, like they're they're very proud of a really great, you know, I, I think they even described it as a great mediocre story. 
but they're doing financially well to keep the business going, keep growing the product. They grow the customer base continuously at a reasonable pace. And so there's this neat thing of like, you know, what's the, how do we define success as a company or as a product is relative to the, you know, the bar you set of, look, is it going to be, you know, an, an, an Evernote or a OneNote or, or whatever. It, it's always interesting. Like, how do we, how do we carefully define what, what will success look like at inception, at year one, at year three? And, you know, how have you seen people rationalize that, especially when you're developing? Like, you have to, you have to think ahead before you even launch sometimes. Like, and how do you rationalize those numbers as the adoption plays out? Yeah, I think it, it, a big piece of that is, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, how do you fund the company? Yeah, right? and how do you fund the growth? If if you are if you take significant venture capital, you know, as as fuel, then you 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 have made you have made a choice. Yeah. You have made a choice. It's very different gonna... than the revenue funded model, which is the so, and I guess I should have led with that too. That this you you've actually very smartly called out. This is the reason why they can make choices like that. Basecamp, totally cool with being revenue funded. Life is good. No VC money. They don't have to get 10x, you know, and and high multiple returns. So they can make those choices. Evernote, probably not defined as successful because they had a decent amount of of VC that is not going to be happy on the other side of that that transaction. Right. So I think funding is a critical piece of that. And, and, you know, and, and then as a derivative of that, or maybe it comes before that is um, what kind of company do you want to be um, and what kind of, and who do you want to be able to um, sort of hand over control to and who gets to make, you know, strategic decisions and, and create vision. And, and that's why when you take venture capital, you also give up some of those strategic visionary things because now you've got investors and you've got, you know, a board that's probably made up of some of the investors and you've got market pressures, you know, around a lot of things and, and where if you're 37 signals and, and, and then ultimately base camp, you know, they made a decision really early to say this, this product grew out of our agency. And so, it, it based upon even sort of how it was birthed, right? There, there's no pressure on it to become um, anything as long as we, as long as it's still growing and as long as it's still progressing in a positive direction, then we'll keep supporting it and, and we'll keep fostering that growth. But there was never an expectation on it that it was going to become you know, um, a particular size or have to provide a particular return. And so you, you have to decide sort of early, what do you want out of the business to your point of, of expectations? And um, I think, um, and that's why I get concerned because I still think, uh, and I'm biased because some of the companies that I've been a part of starting, uh, we funded through revenue and we funded through, customers also becoming investors in in the product and in the business where we didn't even have to give up equity we 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 gave them a royalty and a revenue share out of it and and so it didn't even affect affect the you know the equity and, and cap table really um and i just don't see enough of that i i i see too many startups chasing the the venture capital path versus 
chasing you know and and, and pursuing customer funding revenue funding and i don't even necessarily look at that as bootstrapping uh, because I think if you've built a, if you understand a problem well enough that you've built a product that can solve that problem in a way that customers value and they're compensating for you for that, I don't think that's bootstrapping. I think that is now running a business and, yeah. and funding it out of operations is 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 to me not bootstrapping. Bootstrapping to me means you know friends and family and your and your you know funding it on credit cards and and that sort of thing but i don't think funding out of operations is bootstrapping i think that's just called running a business yeah when you're on day 60 of your product and you're you're in the black that's not bootstrapping that's just really great product market fit with customers early <laughs> right and i think if you have that and this is kind of you know back to base camp right if you have that really early you get to sort of dictate then you know the the trajectory of the company and and the intensity at which you want to go at it yeah now what's the profile of a great product manager cuz this is they have a very unique role that they have to have vision you know a third vision a third customer goals and hopes and then a third my developer can actually do this thing. It's a very interesting, it's a, it's a trichotomy, not even a dichotomy of like, how do they satisfy all of these needs? And then ultimately, you know, prioritize and say, when do they say no? Like, so how, how do you, how do you become, or how do you find a good product manager and what makes them good in, in, as, you know, as a successful product manager? Yeah, I would say that that the the most successful and best product managers that I know and, and uh, have met over time are, um, and if they're if 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 they're not, they could have been psychology majors, because it is it is a role of communication, collaboration, and, and understanding what every participant in the process values and wants to get out of it and so and you have to defend the interests of everybody involved so you have to defend the interest of the product you have to defend the interest of users you have to defend the interest of designers of developers of devops right and 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 your company's you know interest as the product owner um and so it it, it is a um it's a it's it's a psychological, sociological, um, you know, ex experiment and expedition of managing all these different people's interests, but making each of them feel like you are fighting for and defending their interest as part of the process while not leaving anybody else's interests on the side of the road. And so it's a, it's a, uh, like a couple's therapist, you know, <laughs> sitting between all of these different sort of warring factions. Eh? It is because I get, I get asked a lot of, you know, should product managers know how to code and should they be technical and should they know some UX and, you know, and, and UI, you know, design, you know, stuff and, and should they understand architecture and, and tech stack stuff? And the answer is yes, but only to a degree that it helps them understand how each person in each of those areas is participating and contributing to a product. 
I don't think that a product manager needs to know needs to know how to write code to be an effective product manager. I think an effective product manager needs to understand the implications of engineering and the writing of code and 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 what what an engineer needs to be able to contribute to the, the product team and the product well. Um, but I don't think a product manager has to be an expert in any of those areas. A product manager has to be an expert on how do you bring that all together and make sense of it in a sort of hub, you know, role that you can then have enough information and enough knowledge from all of those areas to be able to call the ball and say, this is, this is the next area of the product that, that needs to get worked on. And, and here's why. Um, so they have to be, I would say, Product managers also have to be incredibly disciplined um, because they will get pulled in a, in a thousand different directions, and their ability to be very disciplined um, is, I think, also critical to their success. Yeah, and this is the interesting thing of they are they are not really good player coaches. In fact, some of the the most challenged product managers I've bumped into in the industry are if they believe they're a player coach, they're in trouble because they're developers that became team leads that now kind of took on product management and they're, they're too close to that side of it that they lose the customer focus and they will always kind of lean. If given a decision that needs to be made, they will always rationalize that the developer experience is often prioritized above the customer experience because like, look, we just can't get this done in time. Like, well, what do you do? Right. You're going to decide someone has going to be dissatisfied with this decision and it's going to be a hard thing to have to present, but guess what? Customers, you know, not that the customer's always right, but the understanding of the customer is what's always right. And, and it's, it's hard to, as I said, in, in practice, I've seen that the more technical you are, the more difficult it is to be an effective long-term product manager. It's almost like, look, I can sell real estate. If the market's great, all you got to do is show up with a contract and people want to buy bloody houses. It doesn't make me a real estate salesperson. It makes me the guy that just happened to be there while the real estate was being sold. And we do that with product management way too often, I find. that We're just like, look, Pete's in charge of the team, so let's just let him run product. Yeah, for sure. And I, th I think that... Um a product manager and the really good ones are impartial, right? That they, they, they don't lean in any particular direction. They do based upon the set of information that they have at any given time, they do what they view is in the best interest of the product. And sometimes that is not in alignment with what users wanted or asked for. Sometimes it's not in alignment with development or design, but, and, and, organizations that have a good product culture um, establish respect for the discipline of product and product management and and companies that aren't good at product don't establish that respect and then development or design or whoever you know marketing gets gets to still sort of run roughshod over you know product managers and companies like that will, will just have a turnstile of product managers because, you know, product managers are not, are just not going to um, sit idly by while that, while that happens. But that also is happening a lot now because most companies are just establishing their product culture and it, it's in its very early stages. And 
Some of them are, you know, and there are different product cultures at companies. Some of them are sales driven that it's just whatever sales can sell. That's what you build. In some cases, it's a development. Whatever development feels like building is what gets built. There's data driven cultures that, that, you know, and, and Google would sort of fall into this category and, and many, you know, other well-recognized companies. But if you go too far in any one of those directions, and then you, you become um, a little blind to some of the other things that are, that are going on, that's also not effective. So product management that isn't respected in an organization, that's an organization that I can say unequivocally is struggling at and will continue to struggle at product until product management is respected as a discipline and a craft at, at an equal level of any other craft inside of the product team and certainly inside of the company. I like the, the phrase that uh, I've heard. I can't remember where it originated, but it talked about ruthless pragmatism is what's required for, for good product management. And, and it's, it's tough. And the ruthlessness is, is necessary because, yeah, it's hard decisions have to be made. They're partly data, you know, a little bit of anecdotal. Like I said, it's a psychology. Uh, there's a lot of nonverbal uh, work that goes on in, in that product manager's day-to-day. The other thing I'll be curious on in your experiences, Ryan, is the sophomore curse of the second product, right? At some point, a lot of companies, they develop a new platform, you know, more than just a straight feature. And I find that's the most difficult thing to do because they've forgotten how to start over. And how, how do companies do that well? And where do you find those pitfalls occur as the the growth of the company now, you know, maybe it's through acquisition or, or just, but it's hard to go back to the well and say, okay, we're going to build a brand new thing. But you've got a customer base who's not using that thing. It's, it's a, now you're split, you know, do we try and sell it to the existing customer base? Do we like, so there's, it's a real, I've seen it play out in some challenging ways. So I'm curious on your, Who's done this well and, and maybe who has tripped, <laughs> you know, if you don't mind sharing? Well, I think the, the, the big difference there between the first product and the second product and the second product, assuming that the companies had some success with the first product, that's why they have a chance to do the second product is um, uh, constraints. And, you know, uh, constraints are actually really, really beneficial for building successful products. Because when, when you build product one and you have constraints around time, team size, money, um, competition potentially, you know, et cetera, those constraints uh, cause you to prioritize ruthlessly, probably have ruthless pragmatism, right, in the first, in the first product. It also forces you to move really quickly. Because you know that you've got a runway, and if you don't execute within that runway, none of it probably matters. Right. Product two, the company's had some success. Now the company has some processes. Now the company has some methodologies that the company's adopted. Now the company has more people, has more resources, and, and now they don't have the same level of constraints. And so they don't approach the process even with the second product. They, and they think they do because when you talk to companies in this position of building a second product, they think they're operating and executing exactly the same way that they did when they were building the first product. 
um, the reality is they're they're executing very differently, uh, and they just can't see it because they 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 don't even remember, and some of it, and maybe they don't want to remember the pain or on the constraints for the first product, but they just don't operate in the same way and execute the same way. Where on the second one, because the situation is different. It's almost entirely different from the situation around building um, building the first product, and um, you know I think that that um, it, Netflix is a good company to sort of look at. It, it, you know, in, in that um, Netflix has has sort of continually looked at the business and 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 said, um, like even when they got into streaming. They get into the streaming and they they dip their toe in the water and they they took it very slowly initially, and then they didn't even start creating their own content. You know, even though they had started talking about that, you know, much earlier than when they started creating their own content and how that would then get incorporated into the product and and all of that. And I think that that they've always stayed really grounded in the fact that when they've approached something new, they didn't they didn't. You, they didn't approach it saying, well, now, you know, we've got lots of resources, we've got lots of money, we've got lots of smart people. They, they went back to and stayed true to the roots of the first product of saying, we're going to build this in a very tight window. We're going to build this in, in very short uh, cycles and with not a lot of complication. And that's proved to work well for them as it does for everybody. But I think the fundamental point there is that it's easy on the second product or the third product to forget what the circumstances were around the first successful product and, and companies don't typically go back there. The, the Netflix is a funny example because they, I, they are so good at creating new products that when I went to sign up for Netflix streaming, it said my account already existed. And I was like, how is this possible? And I remembered like, oh, crap, I was a Netflix like DVD subscriber. I used to get the DVDs in the mail. And I was like, oh, that's the same. Like they had literally rebirthed in this new format. And I was like, wow, that's so cool because they... I understood now, and then when I connect together, I'm like, oh, now I really believe in this company, but I, there was no history needed to define the value of this new product. And, and I think you, you kind of covered it greatly there. It's just like, just strip off the, the, the history, tighten the constraints and execute like there's nothing, you know, because the problem we have as humans is the experiencing self and the remembering self are different parts of the mind. And so, like you said, while we think that we can act like a brand new company with that hackathon vigor, yeah, no, no, we can't because we, you go into the hackathon, the first thing you think is, let's make sure we're using all the process for CICD and we're doing all the right things. So you're like, no, let's just, just burn this thing down. Let's just create a, an MVP and just hammer it out. We got 24 hours. Like, don't make it perfect, kid. Just just make it, make it yeah. usable. <laughs> Absolutely. A company that, that I have some um, direct visibility into um, when they built the product one, <clears throat> it was very much, you know, that perspective, right? When they started building subsequent products, it was at the very beginning, it was, oh, well, we should get a legal review of this. It's like, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that's, not, that's not, not how this goes. And it just goes to show you that, that it's so easy 
to forget how the first one went down that you you immediately start overcomplicating future ones and it's almost impossible not to fall into that trap so what are the what are the reasons why no one should start a company that are the same reasons why they should <laughs> Yeah, it's the hardest professional thing that anybody can do, um, and it is, and it's not just going to be a professional endeavor, right? When you start a company, this is not something that you can turn off at, you know, some point, you know, in in the day and say, "I'm done. I'm not going to think about it. I, I'm I'm not invested in it emotionally and psychologically and physically," uh, and and so all of those are equal reasons to do it and to not do it. But people have to be self-aware going into it of whether they're really up for the challenge and prepared for that sort of existence. Um, and I, I think, you know, work-life balance is, is difficult as, as an entrepreneur and a founder. I think you can, uh, you can achieve it through discipline, but the fallacy Th that th th what matters and what you have to pay attention to is not going to shift where there are going to be uh, days where um, it's got to be an entire focus on the company and, and any sort of personal things fall, fall by the wayside. I mean, so, you know, I think people just need to understand th that it is not, um, it's not the primrose path that it, that it gets built up to be. And it's not, you know, the, the, blog posts and and you know stories that they see that it is um chaotic and and volatile and highly highly personal and emotional um because the the product and the company are a direct reflection of the founders there's no separating that it eventually grows beyond that if you're successful but at the beginning there is no separating that that connection and and if it's if it doesn't go well, and most aren't, um, that can be very hard to deal with, um, you know, psychologically and emotionally. Um, and most people are not most people are not prepared for that. Look, because we're wired. I mean, everybody knows the hierarchy. We're wired for safety and security and protection, right? Yeah. And so to to say that we're then going to go down and, and take this journey that's likely not to succeed, and we're likely probably going to go into some level of debt around it, and our personal relationships are probably going to suffer to a degree, you know, none of that makes any sense. Yet, if it works, it is the highest of highs, and it is uh, it, you learn more about yourself and about business then you in a very short window then you could learn over a lifetime if, if if even if it doesn't go well but certainly if it goes well you you learn a lot and i disagree a little bit with with the whole cliche and philosophy that you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes i think if you if you start a a company and it succeeds you've learned a whole of hell of a lot more than if you start a company that fails right yeah, it's always that careful thing of, you know, that sort of fail early, fail often type of thing. It's, we got to give more, way more context to that description and that thing. Like you said, that you learn from failure as well. You learn from micro failures uh, and the, everybody has them. It's very, like nothing ever goes perfectly. It's even I, like they said, a great 
we and we retell the story without the without the empty bits that are boring or negative or challenging like we tell the sort of heroic comeback stories and we love them you know, like, you know i think dick wolf who wrote the law and order series says great drama is when you take four weeks and take all the boring bits out and cram it into an hour like that's because you're you have to take out sort of a lot of the mundane stuff that occurs and then and there's gonna be little micro learnings and failures that are also then countered by micro successes that eventually when you strip all that drama that away the drama of the story now is you know the 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 thing like the hatching twitter book and stuff like that where you're like oh man all this stuff was going on but then you realize it elapsed over four or five years but you you read it in an audiobook in an hour and a half <laughs> right right it seemed like it happened over a weekend yeah so here's the neat thing uh because you're close to and you've done advisory and you do and and you've 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 written so well about these stories What's the most common mistake that everybody makes, even though you tell them not to make it? <laughs> Ooh, I would say probably, probably solutioning too early. Um, and, and cause we're also wired th that when, when someone presents us with a problem or we discover a problem, we are wired to fix it. And so we start solutioning um, it, to try to fix the problem because we think that's what we're supposed to do. And we think that's how we can best sort of aid the people that have the problem. The problem with that and trying to build a, a viable product and, and company uh, on top of the product is that w w you end up um, starting to solution and build before you, you have all of or enough of the problem context to actually build something that customers will value in a way that they'd be willing to use in and pay for it. So um, it's hard to have enough patience and slow down enough to, to say, do I understand this problem at an expert level and, or do I think that there are deep, there are more layers to this problem that if we understand them, then then it increases our our you know, odds of success. And I so that's the thing that I would still see people doing is is it's maybe a two sided thing, solutioning too early because they don't have enough problem uh, understanding and expertise. I love founders, I love products, and I love startups that the the founders have had access to, experience with, and relatability to the problem for an extended period of time. Uh, and, and that's when you can have some confidence that these, these people understand the problem at an expert level. Yeah, that's a great point. It's funny, it's, and, I, and it, no matter how many times you tell people, it's kind of like the sign that says, watch your head or watch your step inevitably 80% of people will bunk their head or slip and fall. <laughs> like it's, you, you, we know that there's human instinct that's really hard to undo. And like you said, we just want to like, let's just hammer ahead, kid. Like, let's just do it. You know, we, we, if we don't act with somebody else is going to also see this problem. And if we don't act now, right, we're going to, we're going to miss the boat. And, and yeah. it's, and it's like, mm. and that's why I also believe that, that, especially very early with a product and company, you should pay little to no attention to competition because you don't know what their level of understanding of the problem is. 
you don't know what their capability of solving the problem is, and you don't know how much time they're spending with customers and users around their product or the problem. All you know at that point is how much time you're investing in those things. So you shouldn't give too much respect and credence to the competition of the fact that, that they're operating and approaching it well and effectively because we know even based upon our conversation right now that most people won't because it the human nature takes us in in the opposite direction of the way that you need to do most of these things so if you know that you're approaching it properly i would i would pay virtually no attention to the competition and have confidence in the fact that you understand the the principles and the right way to approach these fundamentals and if you do that you're not going to have to worry about the competition anyway. It becomes the problem too of being way too close to the problem. I, as a product creator, am like intensely aware of who my competitors are because I've deeply researched them. And you go to a customer and you're like, here's a, like a multi-million dollar company who I know is my competitor. And they've got a product that's like, I know the Venn diagram of crossover. I know how to do the competitive positioning. I knew it. And you get there and they're like, Sure, who's that? Oh, I never heard of them. <laughs> and you're almost disappointed because you're like, I, I spent all this time like digging in. But quite often, you know, I think Penn Jillette best described, he says, uh, he says, there are 7 billion people on earth. He says, and I know how many people know me. He says, because we said, when I was on The Apprentice, someone showed up the theater and they're like, I have no idea who you are, but I came to see your show because I saw you on The Apprentice. And he's like, how is it that, he says, that I'm not known. He says, I think I'm fairly well known. And then he realized, he says, well, 7 billion people, this many people know who we are. This many people are in our mailing list and have come to the show. He says, statistically, no one knows who I am. Right. <laughs> so you've got to kind of be mindful of that, the breadth of the market. If you're, if you're like laser focused on it, you get myopic in your attention to it. And then you forget that the customer is the one that's actually going to give you your competition, not the other way around. Absolutely. And, and, and we just, we, we, and part of this is driven by pitches and pitch events and investors, you know, and, and, you know, asking, well, who's your competition. And so, and we get founders sort of wrapped around their, you know, their own axles uh, of paying attention to the, the wrong things at the wrong time. Yeah. That whole thing of like, if you don't have competition, that means you don't have a market. So you're like, well, not true, true. You know, there's, there's, there's nuance to a lot of it, but it, I mean, look, Zoom's a great example. No one would have told them it was a good idea to go get into the market of what they did. And somehow they've, they've pulled it off as we record on it myself right now, you know, like that's, I'm a proud user. Uh, and the, also, the other thing is find me the greatest product on earth and I'll find some of you who absolutely hates it, would never pay for it. <laughs> yep. And every product, even the greatest ones, have holes and, and a different way to approach the problem that, that other customers would value that different perspective. And yeah, I think one of the things that we've also, and I love your point on Zoom, we also use Zoom at, at AWH. And um, I, I tweeted this out, and it's actually in, in the book too. I forgot that's chapter in the book. Um, the, the best products win now. You, you don't have to be first to market in a category to be very successful now. Um, that was true 20 years ago, maybe as close as 10 years ago. Now the best products win. Um, so that's why you see ent 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 entries like Zoom into a space 
that if, if you looked at it and you said, oh my goodness, why would they ever build another web collaboration tool, right? We've already got, you know, a hundred of them and they're all sort of mediocre. And then when you see it, then you're like, well, that's part of the reason they did it because we, we had a hundred that were mediocre. Um, but the best products win now. If you can reduce friction and you can, and you can improve user value, even in an incredibly competitive, nasty space, there's still plenty of room to have a successful product and company. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's, there's a huge customer base regardless. They may be shared customers. They may be, you know, sort of Venn diagram crossover to other products, but there's always, there's always room. I don't say like, I actually have a blog that's about to, to go out. It's, it's called the early bird gets the worm. Great for birds, not for worms. Great time to be a second rising worm because you got a full bird and you've got the whole place to yourself now. And, and so there's, there's always room and those sort of maxims of first mover advantage and all that stuff can really, you got to be careful if you just, if you focus way too strongly on the rules, you don't take the context into account. And that context, like you said, is just, you know, there's always, there's always room. There's always a market. There's always opportunity or, or there can be, it's not, not always, but you know, there's still opportunity that that's untapped somewhere. Absolutely. And I think that, that, People get, you know, scared off, you know, sometimes when they see a very, you know, competitive space and, you know, they shouldn't necessarily um, think that way. And, and there's, there's always room for opportunity inside even very crowded spaces and you get time to sort of figure it out. Um, and and you, you don't have to operate with quite the level of intensity because you can fly under the radar for a while and you can, you can go into a niche and, and, and really sort of, um, cut your teeth in that niche. And then when you're ready to go a little bit more broad based, you can. So, um, yeah, I think that, that, you know, everything has its, its, its nuances and its layers and you just can't take things at, at the, you know, sort of cliche, you know, snippet, you know, um, value that, that, you know, we often do, um, you know, and I think it's one of the challenges around, um, you know, startup and, and founder uh, sort of, you know, community is, is there are these narratives that um, paint with very broad strokes. And I think that can be, that can be super dangerous. Yeah. The giant phrase written in Helvetica surrounded by block quotes on the, uh, on the wall behind the front desk really won't actually define the culture and the success of the company. As they say, Andreessen very nicely says, culture is how they behave when you're not looking. And, and that's a lot of kind of what you create and why the, the people, the product, the customer is important and why. So there you go. I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give the plug that's, that's much deserved. Uh, so folks can go to thefoundersmanual.com. We'll have links in the show notes as well on the, on the site. Uh, so founder flow, startup flow, product flow. Uh, there are very few places that you can get any one of these three sets of lessons. And there's no place where I've been able to see it successfully laid out so well in, in one spot. And, uh, and it's, you've got skin in the game too, which is also, I should give that, you know, like you said, you've, you've lived this experience and you've, you've seen the problem, which is why you've done such a great job of, of telling that story and bringing these lessons to, to people Versus it's not like if I see a 20 year old kid who says, I've got a book about how to be a good founder. I, come back to me in 10 years, kid. <laughs> I, I, I adore that you've read others and you've been able to emote it in a story. But 
I want to see some wrinkles. I want to see some pain <laughs> a little before I'm going to read and trust what you wrote. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for the kind words about it. Um, it um, ended up being a, a labor of love to put those words on paper, and I hope people, you know, get uh, get some insights and get a little bit of value out of out of it if they check it out. Also, another thing when when you say like most people, it's pretty bad idea to to found a company. Really bad idea to write a book. It's there's it's very little reward for a whole lot of work. Yeah, somebody should have told me that part ahead of time. But uh, you know, I'm glad you took the. I'm glad you 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 put that out of your mind and and brought this out. It, it's very very well done. So Ryan, where can folks find you online if they want to connect and and uh, and and talk to you or or, or AWH and 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 kind of learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, I'm, you know, on LinkedIn and Twitter and the social platforms. Um, probably the shortcut is is ryanfrederick.biz. And uh, you can get to the book from there as well. Thank you for mentioning the book site. And then you can get to me on some of the other um, social platforms through that through that page as well. Perfect. Yeah. So folks check out that. We'll have the links in the, in the show notes as well. And with that, Ryan, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. Uh, I continue to be a student of yours and, and I hope to reconnect again soon. Who knows? Maybe I'll be on the other side of the founder's story next time we talk, if, we, uh, if life goes well. That would be awesome. I'll do the interviewing next time. There we go. I like that. Hey, Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you.